You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. All right. I think most of you all know me. I'm Michelle. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. I work with employers on a daily basis. And I have these practical discussions with employers where we talk about the risk of non-compliance and also, you know, what's best for the business and try to marry the two, if you will. Not giving legal advice. I'm not an attorney. I have to always have that disclaimer in there. And the last one I have for you is to stay diligent on your updates. This is a time of year that we see a lot of moving parts of legislation, and you may have seen some guidance released from the DOL just last Friday, so things are happening, and uh, so keep diligent on your updates. Okay, so having said that, the goal today is to help address your questions. So you can see we have this new format. We went to Ask Michelle instead of a full-on presentation. It's 30 minutes where we really encourage our audience members to submit questions in advance using Ask Michelle because we want to answer the questions that are most meaningful to you as our audience. So now with this new format, what we're going to do is a brief HR or benefits update. And then we're just going to follow it by answering your questions. Always, always, you can feel free to save this email address, askmichelle at boltonco.com. You can send me an email at any time. If it's close to the monthly discussion that we have, then I may wait and hold off and answer that on air. New episodes are available on Apple Podcasts each Tuesday. You would just go to Camayo's Compliance Talk in your Apple podcast, you search for Camayo's Compliance Talk, and you'll be able to subscribe and get any of our recent episodes in case you miss one. So let's start talking about compliance, right? Let's do it. The first section we like to go through, I'm calling it compliance chatter. And um, we have some news with the CDC. They relax their COVID-19 guidelines. And I think most employers have been asking, well, what does that mean for OSHA guidelines or Cal OSHA? Because obviously Cal OSHA and OSHA like to mirror their guidance using CDC's official guidance that they release to the public. So if you're wondering what does it mean for OSHA guidelines, Fisher Phillips put out a really good article that entitled 10 Most Common Employer Questions coming out of the CDC news that they loosened the COVID-19 guidelines. So that's a great article to read. You can download the slide right now in the webinar handout section, and you can click on that link. It'll take you right to the article. Health cost transparency efforts. If you've been listening to my monthly webinars for a while, you probably remember that we've talked about transparency efforts for quite a while. The federal government has made a, a big push to increase transparency in the marketplace. And part of those efforts uh, are um, reporting deadlines that must be met, 
um, pricing tools that must be created for members, machine readable files, and, and all of that, that data just getting out into the, into the market. So the, we have an upcoming deadline. This is an, a deadline that's 1227 of 2022. It's a new reporting you may not have heard about yet. It's called Section 204-RX-DC Reporting. And RX stands for Prescription Drugs, and DC stands for Data Collection. And it's Section 204 of the CAA 2021 Act that was passed. So that's why we just call it the Section 204 Reporting, or the Section 204-RX-DC Reporting. So what is this? Well, this is a report that must be compiled and submitted to the CMS website, their HIOS system. And the things that have to re be reported on are, you know, top 50 brand name drugs being used, uh, prescription drug costs, the premium for the plans, the employee contribution, the employer contribution, and, and a, so much more than that. The good news is, if that you're an employer and you sponsor a group health plan with prescription drugs covered, if you're fully insured, your carrier is going to take care of all of that reporting for you. So you don't have to do any of it, which is fantastic because it will be quite a burden for the carriers. Then if you're self-insured, you can see I've got a bullet point here. If you're self-insured, the employer, or likely, you know, the plan sponsor, and the plan sponsor is typically the employer, needs to take action. And that is to understand whether or not your TPA will take on the responsibility for submitting this Section 204 report to CMS on your behalf. It's very important to understand if, see, if your TPA will do that if you have a self-insured medical plan at your organization. Now, if you're fully insured, so if your group medical plan is fully insured at your organization, as I said before, your carrier will take care of it, no action needed unless your carrier connects with you uh, for a few pieces of data, but no action needed. But if you're self-insured, please contact your TPA, ask them if they will be taking accountability and responsibility for the Section 204 reporting. A health cost transparency effort that's in the past, or well, it's already been implemented, the deadline is passed, is the machine readable files. I don't know if you all remember that. It didn't get a ton of attention, but certainly uh, carriers were notifying their employers and their group health plans, hey, we're gonna take care of this for you, we're gonna post a link here. And there was some concern that the employer had to post the link on their website or on the employer's plan website, which generally an employer doesn't have a dedicated group health plan website. There was a lot of concern, a little bit of gray area. And the agencies came out on Friday, this last Friday, a little past the deadline of July 1, right? Um, a little bit typical. But they did validate that employers are not required to post the links on their own website as long as there is an agreement that the carrier or the TPA will post the files. 
And this is always what we've been saying here at Bolton. We've always said, look, if your carrier's doing it or if your TPA is doing it, there's no need for you to, to uh, add it to your own website. Although the conservative approach prior to this guidance was that, you know, if you wanted to be conservative, maybe you do post it on your own website. Um, but we can see now this past Friday, there is official guidance that states that you do not have to post it on your own website as long as the TPA or the carrier is posting it on there. We're going to go back to that Section 204 uh, RSDC reporting. I have a question that popped up for there. The question is, if we're self-insured for dental, uh, does this reporting, is it required for uh, dental? Sorry, I had to <laughs> paraphrase that. Uh, no, these cost transparency efforts are are definitely centered on medical plans, on your medical plan. That is a great question. Thank you for, for asking it because now I can clarify that it is medical plans that the transparency efforts are focused on. So Section 204 reporting, medical plans only, and then machine-readable files. Also, those files are full of medical plan data. So all focused on, on major medical. All right, we saw the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act not too long ago, and there were a lot of pieces in there that really had nothing to do with group health plans or didn't have any direct impact on group health plans. But there are a few things in the act that might have some direct, or excuse me, indirect impact. So the Inflation Reduction Act was passed into law um, almost two weeks ago, I believe. And it does, it might, it might have some indirect group health plan impact. We released a blog on the topic, so, and we've outlined, you know, where we think the direct indirect impact might be so you can read more about that by clicking on that link i would say the perhaps the biggest impact to our world here in group benefits is that the cost of insulin is um hopefully going to get cheaper uh and and it's protected so for example uhc announced in mid-july that their fully insured health members will have no cost share for insulin starting in 2023. That's definitely a step in the right direction, right? So while the Inflation Reduction Act did not require that, it's not a law, but the attention that insulin specifically is getting and, and some other prescription drugs, but we're just speaking specifically to insulin. The attention that the cost of insulin is getting has already made a positive change within UHC. You know, so that, that's kind of cool. So I'm just going to restate that to make sure that everyone heard. UHC members as of January of 2023 will have no cost share for insulin. And that's not a law. That is not a law. Um, that is really just born out of the the attention that the, the cost of insulin has been getting. And then the, the Inflation Reduction Act does have a law with regards to insulin, but it's for Medicare members, for Medicare members. It does not apply to group health plans. Bottom line is I, I we all wanted to know or we're all kind of waiting to see, okay, what kind of impact is this going to have? Is it going to drive up prices? Is it going to drive down costs like it's supposed to do? You know, what will it, what kind of impact will it really have? 
Well, as of now, we can look at UHC's announcements and we can say, okay, well, it did have an indirect impact. You know, the, the, the pressure uh, from carriers to lower the cost of insulin specifically. And the other thing I want to point out, via the Inflation Reduction Act, they did codify into law that um, having insulin covered at 100% on an HSA plan does not interfere with HSA eligibility. So that's also a really great thing, right? And what that means is that, you know, if you're an HSA member or if you offer HSAs at your organization, you probably know that HSAs have strict guidelines on plan design, which means that all services except preventive services must be subject to the deductible first in order to qualify as an HSA plan. And with the Inflation Reduction Act codifying into law that insulin at no cost share won't interrupt that HSA eligibility, that is, that's a great thing. I would say those are the two major pieces that, that would have a group health plan impact or indirect impact from the Inflation Reduction Act. And then that leaves us with the, the last uh, kind of chatter I've been hearing is about paid leave Oregon. So if you are an employer or you work for an employer that has workers in Oregon, right? so employees performing work in Oregon, there's a new payroll tax that starts January 1 of 2023, and that payroll tax is used to fund the paid leave program that will be available in 2023 for uh, eligible employees. All right, here's what we have coming up next. Did you know? I just, I like to make sure that anything that comes across my desk or that I'm hearing, I like to share it with our audience because it's nice to have perspective, right? It's nice to know what are others doing, what are others thinking, what's happening out there other than just, you know, our organization. The first thing that you may already have experienced, if you're a January 1 renewal, if your group health plan renews in January 1 or maybe even December, you may have already experienced that medical renewals are climbing. For, I would say for the COVID years, they were down. The trend was down. It was really nice to be able to, to deliver renewals that had either no increase or has single digit increase. And um, we're seeing this year that medical renewals are, are climbing into 2023. That's not to say that your specific renewal will experience um, this increase, but I'm just saying overall in general, that's what we're hearing and that's what we're seeing in the market. Affordability, so the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, you, you you know that if you're an applicable large employer, so if you have more than 50 full-time equivalent employees, your organization is subject to ACA pay or play rules, which means you have to offer affordable and qualifying coverage. Otherwise, you're subject to penalties. So the affordability part of that coverage um, always comes with an increase each year, and it's always adjusted each year, and it drops for 2023, it's now 9.12% instead of for 2022, it was 9.61%. And this is 9.12% of the employee's you know, household income. 
So what this means is that when it drops, it means that uh, the affordability threshold is lower, which means less of a cost share from the employee to pay their portion of premiums. So just be mindful of that when you are going through your renewal for 2023 and when you are calculating or modeling out your contribution scenarios, you just want to be mindful that it's now 9.12% to be considered affordable. Oh, I saw something that I, I thought might be of interest to our audience. There's a vendor out there who can help your employees navigate state and federal programs like disability, Medicare, Medicaid, and even COBRA. So I started looking into this and I thought, okay, what does it mean when they say navigate? So are they going to help someone fill out a, a California SBI application, you know, help them get that process started? Uh, and the more digging I did, the more it really seemed like the, the meaningful part of it, perhaps to some on the line, is that they, they provide an advocacy service to your workforce that, you know, they're saying, okay, we're going to empower them with knowledge to maximize their benefits and maybe even look outside of the workplace. So, for example, those that are of Medicare age or Medicare eligible, Sometimes you have employees who are still enrolled in your plan and enrolled in Medicare or are not enrolled in Medicare. And this advocacy service can help the employees work through, you know, what's best to be on the group health plan or is it best to be with Medicare and have a supplemental plan with Medicare? So it can help your employees navigate the, those types of questions as well as, you know, the marketplace or COBRA. In, in these state disability programs. So this is a vendor who, who bills themselves as an advocacy service, and that's the type of thing that they help employees with. I think it's really interesting. There certainly seems to be a need out there to help employees understand what benefit options are best for them as far as you know, when they go out on disability or when they become Medicare eligible. So I wanted to, to show you this and give you a little bit of a teaser, if you will. If it sounds interesting to you and you think it's something your organization might want to look into as far as a proposal and cost, let me know. Just shoot me an email and uh, I'll get you in touch with the right people to look into that product. And there's a question I have later on today that was asked of me that ties into this Medicare uh, portion of, of what I was talking about. So it is, it'll be a good seg segue when we get there. All right, we're going to spend the rest of the nine minutes on the call just going through the Ask Michelle questions. So the first question I will address is at the top. Does an employer have to track domestic partners enrolled in the plan? And does it matter if they're registered or not? First, before we do that, I'm going to try something new today. I'm going to deploy a question, a poll, and I'd like you to answer if you're comfortable with it. So I'm launching it right now, and the poll is open. You'll see the question is, do you track domestic partners enrolled in the plan right now? So there's no right answer. It's just, it's, I think it's, nice to get your input and to understand where you are right now, especially as I go into answering this question here. And I can tell you in my experience, 
the employers I've spoken to, it's very rare that it's tracked. I shouldn't say rare. I really shouldn't. I would say the majority of employers I speak to do not track domestic partners in the plan that are enrolled in the plan. And I, that's pretty typical of California the, because of how loose the, uh, the rules are with regards to you know, domestic partner eligibility on the medical plan. Okay, about half of you have voted. So we'll just get to the results here. All right, yep, half of you have officially voted. 58% um, say no, we do not track. And then 42% say yes, we do. I would say that's pretty close to what I thought it might be. It's pretty close to what I thought it might be. So let, let's get into this answer this question. Does an employer have to track domestic partners enrolled in the plan? While there's no legislation that says you must track, so no, but let's back up. The federal government requires the employer to tax properly, you know, to ensure that they're collecting the employee and employer share of taxes. And the federal government does not recognize domestic partners as eligible tax dependents, okay? So I want to make sure I get that fact out there. Uh, the IRS does not recognize domestic partners, whether or not they're registered. So registered or not has no bearing. Just so we'll just say domestic partners. The IRS does not recognize them as eligible tax dependents. So the IRS essentially says that the employee cannot pay for the domestic partner's premium, whether it be the portion attributable to medical, dental, or vision. The employee cannot pay for it with pre-tax dollars. They have to pay for it with post-tax dollars because the domestic partner is not their eligible tax dependent like a spouse or like a child. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense so far. And so what that means is, okay, the IRS wants their money. You know, if it's not an eligible tax dependent, you cannot take a pre-tax deduction for the amounts attributable to the domestic partner's premium to be enrolled. And so that means to be able to tax properly per the IRS rules, you have to start tracking your domestic partners in order to tax properly. And so the roundabout answer to does an employer have to track is yes. If you are looking to be compliant with the IRS taxation rules, you do have to track domestic partners because then you have to uh, set up a post-tax deduction from your employee's paycheck for the domestic partners they have enrolled in medical, dental, or vision. And then the second part of this is if you're an employer and you contribute to the domestic partner's premium, whether it's a spouse or domestic partner, if you contribute a portion to that, that premium, you have to impute the amount of that portion as income to the employee. That's how the IRS sees it. If you have any questions, let me know. I know that it is uh, it's a little bit complex because it's a little bit of a two-parter. Okay, our, bowl, our poll is officially done. 59% do not track, 41% say yes, they do track. All right, thanks for sharing. I think that's really interesting and, it, and I think it also kind of follows what I see as well when I speak with employers. And I think it's nice for us all to know 
because sometimes I speak with an employer and they, for the first time, I, I talk to them and I say, um, I'm checking off, you know, compliance items and I'll say, are you taxing domestic pro partners properly? And they are not. And they're worried that, that they're out of compliance. Of course, they're worried about that. But you're not alone. You're not alone. That I can say that for sure. Definitely, I've spoken with employers that don't tax properly, uh, and and that's just a risk that an organization takes if they choose not to. Next question: Can an employer pay for an employee's Medicare premiums? I get this very, very often, very often, and it makes sense why we would, right? And this ties back to my my other uh, my um, the talk about the advocacy program. It makes sense because if you're an employee and you're eligible for Medicare, um, sometimes you would just rather go on the Medicare plan and then not enroll in the group plan. But then you want your employer to pay for the Medicare plan because you're not enrolled in the group plan. So it just kind of makes sense. Like, look, look, let's just pay for the employee to go on Medicare. It helps us because it puts the, the claims utilization on Medicare. And it helps the employee because that's where they want to be. Unfortunately, for employers over 20, employees, you're subject to something called MSP rules or Medicare secondary payer rules. So for groups over 20 employees, Medicare has already figured out that this is something that might happen. And Medicare has already said, this is not permissible because we do not want you to encourage employees to move from your group health plan onto Medicare because essentially you're shifting group health, health plan costs, you're shifting the group health plan costs to Medicare and Medicare says, we don't like that. So here's the rule. So for large employers and Medicare defines large as over 20 employees, the employer cannot subsidize Medicare premiums, cannot do that. Now, if your employee chooses to enroll in Medicare versus the group health plan because maybe they, they work with someone who, and uh, an expert, and the expert says, you know what, we think you're better served on Medicare with maybe a Medicare supplemental product, then that's okay, that's totally fine. It's just that you as the employer cannot incentivize your employee to move on to Medicare, which includes paying for their premiums. I have a follow-up question regarding domestic partners. The question is, how should California employers tax domestic partners since California treats domestic partners like spouses? That, thank you for asking that. The, really, the way that I've seen it done is that you have to take the taxes. Uh, you have to do post-tax. But the employee, when they file their tax return, they can actually indicate that they've paid a portion of premium for the domestic partners and they can write it off there on their California tax return, on their California tax return. I actually um, worked on a situation like this with one of my employers a few years back and I got a, a lot of detail from them. I know their payroll vendor uh, was able to kind of help them work through it, but if you if you, the person who asked this question, if you want to need to follow up with a little bit more data on how that looks, then feel free to email me and I'll, I'll get you that. But essentially what it is, is you would treat it like post-tax and impute income, but the employee themselves, when they go to file their California tax return, they can, they can uh, file or, you know, deduct 
the taxes they paid on um, the domestic partner premium. So that way it looks like they've never had to pay state tax on those premiums. Good question. Almost there, can I terminate an employee's group health insurance if they do not keep up with their cost share during SMLA? Barring any policies you have in place, maybe in your handbook or internally, yes, you can. FMLA regulations allow you to terminate that coverage if they don't keep up with their cost share during FMLA. There are certain rules. You have to give them a 30-day grace period, and you have to give them a 15-day advance notice in order to cancel that coverage or terminate that coverage. But you can terminate coverage if the employee is not keeping up with their cost share. And last question, can an employee use their HS, excuse me, use their SSA funds to pay for their domestic partner's healthcare expenses? And the answer is no, they cannot, they cannot. And it's just for the same reason as the first question. The IRS allows employees to put money into a pre-tax fund the flexible spending accounts. So the IRS sets forth rules and it's all about taxation and the IRS does not recognize domestic partners, uh, whether they're registered or not, as eligible tax dependents. So therefore, the money in your employee's FSA account cannot be used towards the domestic partner's healthcare expenses. That's the last of the questions I have today. Before you go, I've got another poll for you if you'd like to take this. This will really help us understand, you know, what information can we talk about and what questions are you interested or, you know, are most meaningful to you. So I just deployed the poll. What topic below is most meaningful to you? If you want, please feel free to answer this. It will just help me as I think about, you know, what's relevant each month. It's also nice to know, you know, what's relevant in your world right now. All right, thank you. I see a lot of you taking that poll. I appreciate that. And then we'll move on to our last slide, resources. It's just a reminder to subscribe to the Bolton blog if you want those updates. You know, the paid leave org, the paid leave organ. Um, we updated everyone via our blog, so you do have to subscribe. And that's at boltoncode.com/blog. If you have benefit-related questions, um, if you're online, you're a Bolton client, please feel free to contact your team at any time, or of course myself as well. And then Mineral, for our Bolton clients, Mineral is always a good resource for the latest employment news and sample forms and policies, paid sick leave charts, which is really important in today's environment to keep track of that, especially if you're hiring remote employees. All right, 68% of you have voted. And 24% are focused on benefit renewals and open enrollment right now. It kind of makes sense. We're entering that season. 29% employment-related issues for paid leave laws. I know, those patchwork of paid leave laws. Then 24% um, hiring and firing employment-related issues. You all are awesome. Thank you so much for contributing to that. Almost all of you all voted, so that's fantastic. Don't forget, throughout the month, feel free to email me at askmichelle at boltingco.com. You're always welcome to do that throughout the month. And then if it gets closer, if you submit your question and it gets closer to the, the webinar, then I will answer it on air. Have a great day, everyone.
see you next time.